Welcome once again to the Movie A Day podcast released as part of the Coffee and Heroes podcast network. Watching a movie a day is definitely a difficult challenge. Not just for me, but for those around me who have to put up with my movie choices every day. Given that the last few weeks have contained the challenging themes of monster movies, documentaries and definitely David Lynch week, I thought I would hand control this week over to the other half. There was only one condition, no dirty dancing. So here are the choices of Vicky and my humble opinions on them. We kick things off with Don John from 2013. Movies and porno are different, John. They give awards for movies. They give awards for porn, too. When coming to this movie, I had a quick look at the poster. I mean, just look at it. It is the -the run-of-the-mill generic rom-com poster. You have the title in the middle. You've got Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character in the centre. Julianne Moore's character to one side. And Scarlett Johansson's character to the other. With a subtitle of Everyone Loves a Happy Ending. So it just looks like it's going to be this predictable story and a guy caught between two girls. Wrong. To all the guys out there who are forced to watch through these rom-coms, recommend this one and show a bit of excitement over it and then sit back and watch the reactions that follow. Don John is basically a porno masquerading as a romantic comedy. Well played, Mr. Gordon-Levitt. Well played. The story follows John, a guy who is great with the ladies but prefers the company of online webcams and porn. For him, sex is never as good with a real person as it is with a complete stranger hand-picked by you on the web. Then he meets ScarJo's character and she plays hard to get, but she's so amazing he'll play the long game and settle down. But that doesn't mean he'll give up on the porn though, she just doesn't need to know about it. I have to say this was a very strong directorial debut from Gordon Levitt, though I have to say the ending comes, well, pun intended, a little bit out of left field. It is however funny and charming and it is a rom-com worth catching. 7 out of 10. From there, we go on to Armageddon, 1998. Have you ever heard of Evil Knievel? No, I never saw Star Wars. And so we come to one of the most over-the-top, bombastic, murica, eccentric movies of all time. I make no apologies for Armageddon as one of my favourite movies of all time. I didn't say it is one of the best movies ever made, but it is one of my favourites. It's a perfect example of a popcorn movie as it is filled with action, humour, likeable characters, end of the world stakes and a great emotional ending. Very simple setup. An asteroid is heading for Earth and NASA has come up with an idea to land on the asteroid, drill a hole and drop a nuke to split it from the inside. They call on Harry Stamper, played by Bruce Willis, to advise a team of astronauts on how to drill as he is the world's best deep core driller. Somehow, don't ask me how, It transpires that learning to drill a hole is harder than learning how to be an astronaut. So he decides to take up his own team of roughnecks and outsiders. I just don't trust anyone else to do it. It's really interesting actually. I listened to the commentary on this movie as well. And Ben Affleck pulled up Michael Bay, the director on it, saying like, how can this be easier to be an astronaut than a driller? He's like, shut the hell up, Ben. It's a movie. I digress. It's all just a big ball of cheese and corn with massive emphasis on America saving the world and it's just so much fun that you just don't care. There's great action sequences aplenty here, Bay delighting in destroying New York, Shanghai and Paris. The scenes on the space station and on the asteroid are very well done and incredibly tense. Bruce Willis is on great form, Affleck is great as the cocky up-and-comer, Billy Bob Thornton brings some gravitas to the movie and there's some great small roles filled by Steve Buscemi. Owen Wilson, Michael Clark Duncan, William Fitchner, and Peter Stormare, amongst others. So just find the biggest TV you can, 
a big bucket of popcorn, a few beers, and settle in to enjoy one of the very best big-budget blockbusters of all time. 10 out of 10. From there, we move on to Cocktail 1988. Please, I don't want it to end this way. Jesus, everything ends badly, otherwise it wouldn't end. The guiltiest of guilty pleasures, and once again, I make no apology for enjoying this movie. Hot off the success of Top Gun, Tom Cruise was the biggest movie star on the planet. As the 80s were coming to a close, people were starting to wean themselves off of Arnie, Sly, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme, and they instead preferred a man who stands about 5 feet tall but has charisma to burn. Cocktail further endorsed that perception. Cocktail follows Brian Flanagan. Don't you just love Hollywood scriptwriters' attempts at names with an Irish heritage? He comes back from a few years in the service with dreams of making it in New York. As door after door is shutting his face on Wall Street and all banking facilities, he ends up finding a job in a bar and is taken under the wing of Brian Brown's Aussie Coughlin, a man who has seen it all and has a soundbite for all occasions, or Coughlin's Law if you will. After Brian learns that Coughlin's made a move on his girlfriend, played by a young Gina Gershon, he upsticks for Jamaica, as you do, where he uses his bar skills and charm to woo the ladies. It goes on from there after he meets Elizabeth Shue, there's my 80s dream crush once again, and ends up back in New York again hoping to make cocktails and dreams a reality. This is not just a fluff piece, there are some genuinely dark moments that you sometimes forget about when you haven't watched Cocktail for a long time, you know, especially Coughlin's eventual fate. But you know that Bran is going to be treated kindly by the powers that be in the end. And isn't that what we all want in a guilty pleasure? A movie where the end is not in doubt, but makes you smile. 8 out of 10. Next up, we have Pearl Harbor 2001. You know what top secret is? Yes, sir. It's the kind of mission where you get medals, but they send them to your relatives. First things first, I loved this movie when it came out. I happened to be working in a cinema at the time, and I'd always time checking the screens with the assault on Pearl Harbor that filled the middle of the movie. You know, my timing was always spectacular for that. I thought the effects and the action sequences were fantastic, and they still hold up really well two decades later. That in itself is depressing. As for the rest of the movie, well, the thing is, I love Ben Affleck. I always have, I think, his best work has been done with... Kevin Smith and the likes of Chase and Amy and to a lesser extent, you know, Jersey Girl and Dogma. And of course in his directing with movies such as The Town and Argo. And I genuinely like his turn as Batman. But here, as with the rest of the cast to be fair, it is like he is trapped in a soap opera and acts accordingly. Here's some sample dialogue. A champagne cork hits his character in the nose. Ow, it hurts. Your nose hurts? Actually, I think it's my heart. As described by my past two reviews, there's always a place for cheesiness in movies, but they have to be in on the joke. Cocktail and Armageddon are not meant to be taken seriously. But this was Michael Bay's attempt at earnest storytelling, and it was effectively marketed as Titanic but in World War II. This is a movie where they were clearly aiming for the Oscars. They had the big grandstanding song by Faith Hill called There You'll Be, which took the place of Celine Dion's uh, Titanic theme tune. They were clearly trying to ape that movie's success. It didn't work. It's a movie that is three hours long, again like Titanic, and it really does feel like it. Take my advice, skip to the assault on Pearl Harbor as it is really exhilarating, and ignore the rest. 5 out of 10. Next up, The Bodyguard, 1992. 
Well, you don't look like a bodyguard. What do you expect? Well, I don't know, maybe a tough guy? This is my disguise. This is just a damn good thriller. Full stop. Outside of 8 Mile, this is probably the best transition any musician has made to the screen. In fairness, it's not much of a stretch, though neither was Eminem's in 8 Mile, as Whitney Houston plays the most popular musician and actress on the planet. However, with all the fame comes all the madness and she starts receiving death threats. Enter Kevin Costner's bodyguard and he is tasked with protecting her. What's very clever about this movie is that it was inevitable that there would be a love story angle or Costner's character eventually falling for Houston. If this were a different movie, that sexual chemistry would be there the whole way through the movie and pay off at the end. Everyone walks off into the sunset happily ever after. But what I like about The Bodyguard is that it acknowledges that chemistry early. Something happens between the two of them, and then Costner decides it can't happen again, that it will cloud his judgement. In other words, it gets the romantic subplot out of the way early, and then just focuses on the thriller aspect of the story. You know... This is one of Costner's very best roles and it's the kind of movie you watch and wish he was still as proficient in Hollywood now as he was in the early 90s. I think along with Tom Cruise he was probably the biggest movie star on the planet at the time. Whitney Houston was one of the biggest musicians on the planet at the time so this was great to go back and watch. It's like a little time capsule almost and just an effectively well made thriller. 8 out of 10. Next up, bit of a change of pace, we have 500 Days of Summer from 2009. This is a story of boy meets girl, but you should know up front that this is not a love story. So we're on to the second Joseph Gordon-Levitt movie of the week. Maybe I need to talk to Vicky about this. But this one could not be any more different to Don John. Here he plays the sop who just wants to be in love with the perfect girl. You know, I've always said that there are two movies that really give a realistic roof. I've always said that there are two movies that give a really realistic view of relationships. One is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Not for the mind-raising part, of course, but the wanting to hold on to all the good memories despite the presence of the bad ones that hurt. And this. 500 Days of Summer is a great rom-com. Very simple stuff, really. Boy meets girl. Girl's not interested. Boy wears her down. They get together. The end. Right? Wrong. What's cool about this story is that they show the truth of relationships. Remember that cute trip to Ikea when you both just got together? Doing it six months later and trying to recapture that magic is impossible. Having the same discussion that was once charming and whimsical, six months later and it's just repetitive. I know it sounds like this is a very pessimistic movie on the subject of love. It is just a very objective one. You know, the movie ends in a way that is great for both characters. Happiness is definitely achievable, but just maybe not in the way that you think. It also has a brilliant soundtrack to boot. Oh, and the sequence in the middle after they have sex for the first time? inspired. Who hasn't felt like Han Solo walking down the street? 8 out of 10. So we finish the week up with another of Vicky's crushes. I definitely see a, a trend emerging through these movies and we're moving on to a Tom Hardy movie. This is Locke from 2013. Well, hear this Gareth. When I left the site just over two hours ago, I had a job, a wife, a home. And now I have none of those things. I have none of those things left. I just have myself and the car that I'm in and I'm just driving and that's it. I'm a big fan of movies set in one location. Hell, Rear Window is my favourite movie of all time. It can infinitely heighten the tension for you to be subject only to everything the main character knows. Whether that be the environment, the sounds, in close vicinity or the situation. 
it can put you in the shoes of the character so fully that you feel everything and therefore you're committed to their story. As I said before, Rear Window is the best use of a single location ever committed to film. But I have to be honest, Locke caught me completely off guard and it's not far behind. I'd never seen the trailer for Locke. You know, I I don't tend to watch the trailers before I watch these movies for this uh, little experiment. And all I knew about it was that it was the Tom Hardy in a car for the duration of the in-movie movie. I naturally assumed that there would be some crime elements or that he was being forced to transport someone or something against his will. But it's much more simple than that and all the better for it. All you need to know going in is that Locke's life is unravelling and he does his best to organise everything he can whilst driving to London using only his wits and his cell phone. Tom Hardy is simply spectacular in this movie. If you have a one location, one character movie, you damn well better have a charismatic, sympathetic and capable actor filling the role. I've always been a fan of Hardy, but have to this but at this point I'd only really seen him in the likes of Inception and Dark Knight Rises and Mad Max. After seeing this, I'm gonna be searching out his entire catalogue, things such as Warrior and Bronson, because Hardy is just fantastic, and it doesn't always have to be a showy role for him to be excellent in it. Very tense movie, great acting and writing. Need I say more? Highly recommended, nine out of ten. And that's gonna bring another week to a close. I think inspired by some of Vicky's choices and certainly by Cocktail, next week's going to be 80s week. I'll look forward to seeing you then, guys. Until next time. Mm-hmm.